The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Today, uh, it was my intention uh, to continue in the exposition of 1 Peter and to wrap up chapter 4, but I feel somewhat duty-bound to address uh, another issue, and uh, it's not going to be the mask mandates. Uh, You'll have to wait for that for another message, but uh, we will get around to that. Uh, but there's another issue that I, that I do feel duty-bound to address. Uh, it was Martin Luther who was quoted as saying, If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And it's clear that at this moment uh, that there is a battle raging and it would be unfaithful for us to flinch and to take flight in the face of it. So where's the battle? In the past two weeks, I've received a number of of emails alerting me to two developing situations, uh, one that's taking place in Canada and the other uh, that's taking place right here in the U.S. And in both cases, there are faithful ministers uh, who are asking if we would be willing to, to join them to stand in solidarity with them on the battlefield. And I'm more than happy to take that stand with them. So what's happening? In Canada, where our brother James Coates was arrested for opening his church and holding regular church services, there's a bill titled C-4 that was written to amend a subsection of their criminal code. The previous criminal code was intended to protect the citizens of Canada against things like child pornography, uh, voyeurism, and advertisement for adult services. But Bill C-4 expanded that language, the language of that criminal code, to include what's called conversion therapy. And on the surface, that may not seem like much of a battlefield for the church because, you know, after all, we don't practice conversion therapy. We don't believe in conversion therapy. You know, our churches don't advocate that anybody uh, receive shock treatment or drug treatment for any kind of behavioral change. But when you read through Bill C-4, you'll quickly discover that it's not a bill that's intending just to make those things illegal. It's not just the treatments and prescriptions that are now illegal. It's also counseling a person against their perceived gender identity that's made illegal. Uh, Because the counseling is not excluded from their definition of therapy. In other words, if you replace the word therapy uh, with the word counseling, it's an entirely different discussion. It's now illegal in Canada to cause another person to undergo conversion counseling or to promote or advertise conversion counseling, or to provide conversion counseling. And those who are guilty of such an offense could be liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years if the person who came for counseling even came willingly and desired that help, you could still be convicted of the crime. The bill does allow you to provide a certain kind of counseling. Uh, If you're encouraging somebody toward a gender transition, that's okay. If if a person is undergoing a change, you know, that's fine. You can counsel that person towards that change, but just not for reversing their transition. That would be considered harming that individual, even if they asked for your help. And just in case you thought that those who designed this bill didn't have any kind of agenda in mind, listen to what the preamble states. Listen to this. Conversion therapy causes harm to society. And why does it cause harm? Because among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. 
those who would teach that uh, you were the way that you were born has anything to say about who you are are now said to be propagating myths and stereotypes. And the, the bill was voted into law unanimously and went into effect last week in Canada. They unanimously voted that Genesis 127 is myth. I hope, hope you understand that. Unanimously voted that Genesis 127 is a myth, where it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now that is a myth and a stereotype that is dangerous for people to believe. There's a battle raging. And we stand in solidarity with James Coates and the other faithful brothers in Canada who are holding the line. And if they're going to be faithful, they can't flee and they can't flinch. I also received a number of emails about another development happening right here in Indiana. Uh, There's a proposed ordinance in the city of West Lafayette, Indiana, that's uh, seeking to protect minors from serious harms and risks caused by conversion therapy or reparative therapy by unlicensed persons. And listen to how they define an unlicensed person. Quote, any person not licensed or governed by Indiana who listens to this provides counseling. This is a targeted attack against anyone who would provide counseling towards conversion of minors who would identify themselves in a way that does not match their, the gender that they were born with. And the ordinance specifically defines conversion therapy as any practices or treatments that seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same gender. So now you can't counsel anybody not to have romantic feelings towards somebody of the, the same gender. That's, been, that's a, a bill that's being proposed uh, to be put into law in Indiana. And again, in the, the writing, it says that you can counsel or assist somebody who is in a gender transition. If they're undergoing a change, and keep in mind we're talking about minors here, so you can provide all the counseling and assistance and encouragement that you want to a minor, somebody under 18 who is undergoing a transition. You can provide all the encouragement for them that you want, but you cannot counsel them against that change. That's harming the individual. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And what we are are watching is the despising of wisdom and instruction by fools who are now proposing that it be made a law. And this one is being voted on next month with a $1,000 fine for every day that you're in violation. Uh, just this week, I was on the phone with uh, David Mora. Uh, for those of you who don't remember uh, David Mora, he was uh, with us in the early days of Baltimore uh, Bible Church. He's a TMS grad uh, who's serving in Indiana alongside Steve Byers at Faith Church. Uh, they actually have the largest biblical counseling center in the whole state of Indiana. You know, this is where David Mora serves and Steve Byers at Faith Church. Largest biblical counseling center in Indiana and Just take a wild guess which city they're located in. Lafayette, Indiana, the same city that's now trying to pass this law against unlicensed counselors trying to, you know, uh, prevent somebody from undergoing a transition. Same place. It's not a coincidence. I hope you, you understand that. That is not a coincidence. There is a battle that's raging, and we stand in solidarity with Faith Church of Lafayette, Indiana, and if they're going to be faithful, they can't flee and they can't flinch. There's, there's a coordinated effort going on right now to undermine biblical truth and biblical morality. And while the church is busy asking whether or not we should wear masks, the net is being strategically laid for persecution at home and abroad. That's what's going on. And there's a reason I chose First Peter uh, to be the, the book that we, we work through as a congregation. Because if you're paying attention at all, it's not hard to figure out who the real target is. That's not hard to figure out. The target is the church. That's the target. And we need to be prepared to be the church and to be willing to take a stand. And it's important that we stand for a biblical understanding of conversion, the idea that people can change. And our firmly held belief as a church is that it doesn't matter what kind of desires you may have, even if you feel like you were born with those desires, 
It doesn't matter how long you've been involved in a particular lifestyle. It could be deeply embedded into your personality by this point. It doesn't matter how natural your desires may feel to you and how comfortable it is for you to express those desires. There's hope for change. There's hope for change. You can change. And, and I pray that, that more than anything else that I say today, that the message comes across crystal clear that you can change. That's the message that we have to offer. It's a message of hope from the scriptures. And we would encourage you to seek hope in Christ. Find a church that believes in that kind of hope. And don't be deceived by those who tell you that if you have desires against your, uh, the gender you were born with, that you can't change that. You can't change. No, you can change. You, you can change. You can change. There is hope in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the message that we offer alongside of that message of hope is also a message of warning. Because those who are committed to a lifestyle that's opposed to the express will of God place themselves under his just condemnation. And we cannot be deceived by those who tell us differently. I was recently in a, in a public library and, and I was browsing through the, the religious uh, section just to see, you know, what kind of, what kind of books did they have? And uh, I was shocked uh, to see the, you know, not the books that were, you know, with the, the spine out, but, you know, the face, the cover, so that you could see the cover. What were they advertising? In the Christian section. In the Christian section. They're advertising books uh, to tell Christians uh, that it's okay if you adopt a different kind of lifestyle, supposedly written by Christians. Let, letting Christians know uh, that there is such a thing as a, a gay or homosexual Christianity. Like, that's, that's, that's what they're promoting in the, the libraries right now, in the religious section. And some of these books were endorsed by supposed evangelical leaders to say that it's okay. And some of these books were directed towards children in the religious section, letting children know that it's okay if you adopt a different lifestyle. There are more than two genders. That the Christians for, for centuries have just been reading their Bibles wrong, and we can help you out to understand what the truth is. You know, we've got these little pictures and, you know, diagrams, and, you know, it makes it look like it's just a, a book for kids to pick up. And that's what they're pushing. That's what they're pushing, even in the libraries. And evangelical Christian artists, authors endorse these books. There's a coordinated effort to undermine biblical truth and biblical morality. And it's even coming from the supposed evangelical church. But there's nothing new about this kind of deception. It's been around since the earliest days of the church. And this Sunday, I want to take you to just a few verses in 1 Corinthians to make this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul during the first half of AD 55 by some estimates. And... Uh, Chapters 5 to 6, he addresses the issue of immorality. Uh, we have in chapters uh, 1 through 4 leading up to this, uh, Paul is addressing the vision, the vision in the church and the need for Christian unity. And lo and behold, we have a, a need for that, don't we? Unity within the church. So chapters 1 through 4, he addresses division within the church. Chapters 5 through 6, he addresses disobedience. And in chapters 7 through 16, it focuses on the difficulties in the church, the various questions uh, that were coming up uh, about things like marriage, liberty, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, resurrection, the collection for the saints. You know, Paul deals with all of those things. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes it clear that the church should not be engaged in promoting the teaching or approving the position that you can believe and still live an unrighteous lifestyle. You know, that there's such a thing as an unrighteous, you know, a person of, uh, who commits himself to an unrighteous lifestyle as a believer. There, there's no such thing. That's what Paul is uh, burdened to say here. First Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not where the text leaves us. It also reminds us that there's a glorious hope for change that comes through conversion. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon as we always do. 
Our Father, uh, pleading for you to speak to us through your word. Our Father, that you would open up these things uh, to us and uh, help us to stand on truth. My Father, I pray that we wouldn't flee and that we wouldn't flinch. And uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a, a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Erickson, in his uh, Christian theology, uh, says this. He says, the Christian life, by its very nature and definition, represents something quite different from the way we've previously lived. In contrast to being dead in sins and trespasses, it is new life. What, what Christianity offers is a new life. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Romans chapter 6 and verse Four, it says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, it says that we've put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, so just think about that. New creature, that's what we are. New things have come. We have a newness of life. We're a new self. All these things are describing our experience of salvation. The idea of conversion is a biblical concept that you can be different, that you can be new. But it's important that we understand and separate this biblical concept from the counterfeits that we find in the world and in false religion. Because every kind of change is not a biblical change. And this is important to point out as we begin uh, to introduce this, this to you. Uh, so I have a lengthy introduction for our text. Uh, just giving you a heads up. We'll get back to 1 Corinthians in a minute. Uh, but I want to set the context for what we're talking about, okay? When we speak about conversion as Christians, what we're talking about is a supernatural work of God. That's what we're talking about. A supernatural work of God that results in spiritual or religious change. Uh, Burkhoff in a systematic uh, theology defines conversion in this way, and I find this helpful. He defines conversion as the supernatural work of God. It is, it is that act of God whereby he causes the regenerated sinner in his conscious life to turn to him in repentance and faith. It's also the conscious response of the regenerated sinner. It's, it, it is the resulting conscious act of the regenerated sinner, whereby he, through the grace of God, turns to God in repentance and faith. So God causes it, and the regenerated sinner responds to that work, okay? And there's a number of really uh, important aspects of, of that definition. First of all, conversion is an act of God, okay? Conversion is an act of God, which means that we have no hope in bringing about the kind of change that we're talking about through any kind of physical means, there's no shock therapy, there's no drug treatment, there's no visualization, there's no surgery that can change your orientation. That has nothing to do with your change. You know, a lobotomy can't fix this. That's not the kind of conversion that we're advocating for here. We believe that conversion is a supernatural act of God, and apart from the work of God, that it is impossible for this kind of change to take place. In Jeremiah 13, in verse 23, it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change this. You don't, you don't have the tools to bring about a spiritual change. And it's no wonder that when studies are made of the common practices that are conducted, conclude that, hey, there, there's nothing that you can do to change a person who's oriented in this way. It's obvious why they would say that, because they don't have the tools to change a person in that way. So if you're looking for some kind of natural method for conversion, it doesn't exist. True conversion is an act of God. Psalm 3 verse 8 says, salvation belongs to who? Belongs to the Lord. The turning of the soul is the work that only God can do. Psalm 85 verse 4, restore us, O God, of our salvation. Jeremiah 31, verse 18 says, Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Lamentations, verse 5, and verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 says, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Renew us, restore us, turn us back. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The, Lord of, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, turning the soul back. This is something that God does through his word. And the scripture also makes it clear that God is the one who grants repentance, 
The turning of the soul back to God is something that God gives as a gift. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18 says, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That is something that God has to do. 2 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 2, if you want to flip over there real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, just so you can see that this is, this is the work of God. Repentance, turning to God, is the work of God. Let's us know that we, we gently bring correction to those who are in opposition. Why? Because we can't force anybody into the kingdom. This is a work of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Actually, I'll start at verse 24. It says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. You know, we don't argue people into the kingdom. But to be, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. God is the author of salvation, and conversion is an act of God that's rooted in regeneration. The new birth, that's what uh, Peter referred to. We've been looking at that, 1 Peter one twenty three, that you've been born again of an imperishable seed. You've been brought new life. So it's, it's rooted in the new life that you've been given. And now because God has granted life, now I can respond to God in faith and repentance. As believers, we now have a, a new life that replaces the old one. We have the life of God and the soul of man. And Jesus described that regeneration, that conversion comes out of that's, you know, rooted again, conversion rooted in our regeneration. Jesus describes it like the, the wind that blows. You, you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. You know, you can't control it, but, but you, you can see the, the effects of it. And Jesus says, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. I, 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 can't, I can't control how that happens. That's, that's the gift of God. That's, the, that's God that brings new life. But I'm called to, to tell people to turn to the Lord, repent. And I know that they can only do that if the Lord has granted them repentance, if God has granted them new life. But it's God who supernaturally grants that gift. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead, right? Dead in our trespasses and sin. And it's God who breathes life into the dead sinner. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's an act of God. And if we didn't trust in the author of salvation, what we're talking about, conversion, would be absolutely impossible. We can't change the Ethiopian skin. can't change the leopard spots. You might be able to dye it, but you can't change it. You know, some, some of you come in here and you say, like, you know, all my hair is the same color, but I know that there's more going on in the bathroom when you got that dye coming out. You know, you may, may be able to dye it, but you can't change it. You can't change what it is underneath. And we can't change the Ethiopian skin or the leopard spots. We can't change it. It's something that's impossible for us to do. In another context, if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus spoke about the greed of the heart. And uh, he spoke to his disciples uh, in the context of the, the rich man who, who walked away, the, the rich young ruler who walked away. Take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 19. Look at verse 23. Matthew chapter 19, look at verse 23. It says in Jesus, and this is his explanation to his disciples after the rich man walked away. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were very astonished. I mean, like they, they thought the rich people were the closest to God. They're astonished. They said, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is what? Impossible. <laughs> it is impossible for us to bring about the work of conversion. We, we can't do it. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So, so we pray for conversion to take place and trust in God to do the work that we can't do. But it is possible with God. That's what we're talking about. Change can take place. We are offering hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, not only is conversion an act of God, conversion is also the resulting conscious act of the regenerated sinner. It's an act of God, but it's also the response of the sinner. Those who are awakened by the Spirit of God respond in faith and repentance. That's the response of conversion. And it's just like, like Lazarus. I, I love the illustration of, of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus, who is awakened to life, and then responded to the, to the words that were spoken by Christ. How, how could Lazarus respond to what Jesus said? He had to first be brought to life. <laughs> like, like life had to be brought about before he could respond to the words that Jesus was saying. In the same way, you have to be awakened to life in order to respond to the call to faith 
and repentance. We're awakened by the Spirit of God, but then we do respond. So, so it is also an act of the regenerated sinner that I am responding to that call to faith and repentance. I, I, I cooperate with that call. Back in uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 55, and uh, I'll just flip you back there too, Isaiah 55, just a, a beautiful description of the call to repentance. Isaiah chapter 55, look at verse 6. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Love, love this description here. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. Again, this idea of turning to him. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon there, there's a call to, to seek, to forsake, to return. That's, that's the, the, the concept of conversion. Turn to the Lord. And it's found all over Scripture. There's, there's the call to repent. Uh, Jeremiah 18, verse 11 says, Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way. Turn, turn back. Ezekiel 18, 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than he should turn from his ways and live? Turn back. Ezekiel 18, 32, therefore repent and live. Acts 17, verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should do what? Repent. And, and that's what we call people to do. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Trust in him. We're, we're calling people to do what we know that in themselves they can't do. It, it's, it's like going to a morgue and asking the dead to, hey, get up, get up. We know that we don't have the power to affect that. But if God would grant life, there's some stirring that's going to happen in the morgue. You understand that? So we talk to a dead world, a world that's dead in their transgressions and sins. And we understand that there's nothing that I can do to bring you to life. But what does God tell us to do? I want you to talk to the dry bones. <laughs> I want you to go out and talk to the dead. I want you to go and call them to faith and repentance. And if God grants life, they will respond in trust in God and repentance from their dead works. That is what we've been called to do. We, we've been sent on an impossible mission from our side, but all things are possible with God. And the work of conversion is possible because God is at work in conversion. And he calls people to respond to him. And the only way they could respond is that God has granted them life. It's been said that the, the word repentance is the first word of the gospel. You know, Jesus said repent. The disciples said repent. We're, we're called to tell people to, to repent. We must preach repentance. Preach repentance unto life. In Acts chapter 5, verse 20, Peter was, was ordered, go stand, speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. I'm speaking life. But you might be saying, you know, but... But, you know, didn't you say that conversion is an act of the Spirit of God? I mean, why, why don't you just let God do the convicting? You know, why, why do we need to, to get busy and be out there and speaking to people? And, you know, God, God can do that work on his own. If, if he's going to bring people to life, he can, he can do it without us. But God has sovereignly chosen to use us as his instruments to bring about that work. Over in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it says, How then will they call on him whom they not, have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? Without a preacher. So in, in verse 17, it says, so faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You must speak and faith comes. Like, like it, it's, it's through the speaking of the word of God that God stirs up the faith within that individual. And we're commanded to preach the word. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, puts it this way, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. And if you're, you're listening to this today and you feel trapped by your sins, maybe you're even feeling hopeless, like there's no way out, I'm here to tell you that there's hope. Again, in the, the Westminster Confession, it says, by it, by this preaching of repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk in all the ways of his commandments. And what I'm here to tell you is that if you're listening 
to what we're talking about, listening to the words of this life, listening to this call to turn to Jesus Christ, to live, that you're in death outside of, of Christ, that, that if, 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 if the Lord has given you ears to hear right now, what I'm asking you to do is to acknowledge your sins. Acknowledge that your sins are, are dangerous, that, that your sins are odious in the sight of God, filthy in the sight of God. You need to recognize your sins in the sight of a holy God, the God who knows everything. You know, the, the God with whom we have to do, Scripture says, you will have to do with God one day. And he, he knows you infinitely. You cannot hide yourself from God. And God sees your sin in all of its ugliness. And, and you need to recognize that sin before a holy God. You need to recognize that your sins are contrary to his law and to his nature. And if you have any sense of the, the mercy of Jesus Christ that's offered to you, if you have any sense of the righteous life and the love of Jesus Christ that's been offered to you, you should grieve over your sins, hate your sins, and turn from your sins to the God who's offered life and plead to him for mercy and for life. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And if you would do that, I'm telling you that there's hope for change. There's hope for change. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You can have eternal life if you turn to Jesus Christ today. That is the offer, the free offer of God. Eternal life for all those who would turn to him in repentance and faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can be declared righteous that's the offer that we're making today, that you can be declared righteous if you would drop your sins and run to Jesus. That's what we're asking you to do. And that hope is found in the gospel. And there's one more aspect of conversion that we want to point out before we move on, and it's that conversion is turning to God. It's turning to God. It is the resulting conscious act of the regenerated sinner whereby he, through the grace of God, turns to God in repentance and faith. So not only is God the foundation of our conversion, he's also the goal of our conversion. He not only makes it possible, but he's what you're aiming for. He's the goal of my conversion. It's through him and to him. It's from him, through him, to him. And there's, there's no other way for this to happen except through him. Worldly sorrow, unbiblical conversions all fall short that it has to be directed to him. A lot, of, a lot of times when people, you know, are trying to make a change, you know, it's just that, hey, we want you to turn from this to, to that. We want you to be this kind of person instead of that kind of person. That's not biblical conversion. We're, we're not just about behavior modification. We want you to stop doing this and start doing that. No, no, we want you to give your life to God. <laughs> we want you to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. That's what we're aiming for. That is the goal. It's not just this kind of, you know, worldly, biblical, uh, worldly, unbiblical, you know, kind of, kind of change. That, that's not the kind of change that we're after. We're, we're talking about a change towards God. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says, therefore, repent and return. Return to who? Return to the Lord. That's who you're turning to. Acts 14, 15, Paul said, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. That's who you're turning to. Acts 20, verse 21, it says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. Acts 26, verse 20, says they should repent and turn to God. So, so there's a goal in the conversion. It's not just turn, but turn to who? Turn to who? It's, it's turn to God. And a true conversion and repentance is, is not simply turning away from a practice. It's turning away from a practice to God. It's turning away from sin to God, turning away from self to God. And that's what we're calling people to. It's not, it's not just behavior modification. When you come in here on Sunday, this is not a group therapy session, okay? We're, we're just not trying to, to, hey, you know, you guys, uh, you know, you made some mistakes this week, didn't you? you know, so we're in here to kind of kick you into gear and make sure that you do something better this week. Don't you want a better you? You know, that, that's what people are all about. Don't you want a better self? No, I, I, I want God to change me. I, I want my, my eyes to be lifted up to him. He is my vision. That's where I'm directed. It's about God. What does God want me to do? How do I even know what a better self is apart from God? And that's, that's the problem with so much of the worldly counsel. They, 
don't know what they want you to change into. We just know we want you to change. You know, well, that's destructive behavior, so you want to do something constructive. But why? Well, I don't know. It's just better that way. But what's the goal? What's, what's the end goal? What do you want them to be? I, I love it. It was R.C. Sproul. He said he came to, a, uh, it was an elementary school for one of his kids. And, you know, he says the teachers had all this stuff laid out. It was like, you know, you know we do this for this reason. In five minutes, we do that because we want to uh, introduce them to, to this concept. And we want all these different things, you know, to be happening for your kids. And he's just looking at it. He says, man, this is great. He says, you, got, you guys have thought through everything. I mean, every detail of the day has been thought through. It's, everything is done with purpose. And they said, yes, yes, that's, that's what we're doing. And he says, I just have one question. What is it that you're trying to turn them into? He says, you, you've thought through all these details of every moment of the day. You know, they do this so they can draw this better. They do this so they can add that better. They do this so they can socialize better. But what is it exactly that you're trying to achieve at the end of the day? What do you want them to be? And there were silence. <laughs> Because they didn't know what they wanted them to be. That's the problem with the, the worldly council. They, they don't know what they want you to be. You know, we just want you to do stuff that's productive and helpful. You know, makes, makes my life easier. Well, what, what are we looking for? We're, we're looking for people to change into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. We, we want people to look like Jesus. We're not trying to conform you to our way of life. We're, we're trying to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we're trying to conform you to. The church is not about just kind of, uh, you know, this, this worldly kind of change. It's not behavior modification. It's about biblical transformation. That's what the, the church is about. Corporate sanctification, conforming to the image of Christ. That's what we're after. Again, Burkhoff says, uh, conversion marks the beginning, not only of the putting away of the old man, a fleeing from sin, but also the putting on of the new man and a striving for holiness. So again, the church is not about modification, but transformation. We're not, we're not turning over a, a new leaf. That's not what we're doing. We're not turning over a, a new leaf. We're receiving a new life. That's what we're about. And that's the work that happens from the inside out not the outside in. That's the problem with these worldly kind of conversion therapies. It's from the outside in. You know, if there's something that we can do on the outside, some kind of stimulation that we can give you on the outside, you know, some type of advice or whatever from the outside, like then we can kind of you know, try to get in there and work something different. You can't do it that way. There, there has to be a change from within that takes place from the spirit of God. That's why it doesn't work. <laughs> The methods of the world don't work because they, they approach it from the outside. Outside in rather than from the inside out. And we're changed because we understand that, that it's God who's worked that change within our, our lives. And doesn't that, doesn't that give you hope? That there, there's hope of change in, in Christ? And what all the world can't do with all their gimmicks and gadgets and therapies and treatments, God is supernaturally able to do within the heart by the power of his word and by his spirit. God can do what the world can't do. So there's hope in the preaching of the gospel. So don't think that change can take place without it. Now back to 1 Corinthians 6. Real quick, we won't, we won't be here too much longer, but just want to show you how 1 Corinthians chapter 6 fits into all of this. The ancient city of, uh, of Corinth was notorious for its immorality. Even by the pagan standards of that day, the city of Corinth was considered over the top in its debauchery. It was a, a popular port city, uh, because there was an, a narrow body of land that connected two gulfs together, so instead of traveling 250 miles around the bottom of the, the landmass, you could just travel five miles across this narrow strip. So it was a port city. A lot of people kind of congregated there. A lot of foreigners, travelers came through there. And if you know anything about port cities where a lot of people are coming to, there's often a lot of immorality that's associated with it as well. And that's what happened in Corinth. You know, they brought their sinful appetites with them, and as they're traveling through Corinth, they're wanting to get those greedy appetites satisfied. Corinth was the, the home of the temple Aphrodite, the, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. There were some 1,000 priestesses who were religious prostitutes who lived and worked there. It was a city that was so saturated with immorality that there was a new word developed uh, to talk about immorality. Instead of saying uh, immorality, you'd say, uh, oh, that person is uh, Corinthianized. Because it was so associated with Corinth, immorality, that you can just talk about Corinthianizing people and you already know what's going on. You know, to Corinthianize somebody or for somebody to be Corinthianized, it means that they're living an immoral life. 
You know, there's also a term, you know, that I'm, I'm looking for a Corinthian girl. And what they meant by that was I'm, I'm looking for a prostitute. You know, I'm looking for a Corinthian girl. The city was known for its sinful practices. It was part of their identity. That was their culture. That, that's, that's, that's how they, they were known. They were known for this. And the Apostle Paul enters Corinth armed with nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Acts chapter 18 and verse 13, uh, the residents of Corinth were saying, this man persuades men to worship God, listen to this, contrary to the law. <laughs> that, that was in Corinth. He says, there, this, this man is coming in and, and telling us to worship God contrary to our law. Guess, guess what's going on in Canada and you know, what's proposed in Indiana right now? They, they want to make it contrary to the law to talk about this God, to talk about what God defines as morality. Oh, it's contrary to our law. And it's interesting that they would consider his preaching of conversion against the law. And like I said, we're heading to a very similar time. Someone could have argued with Paul, you know, you know, hey, you should be more discreet about what you're talking about. You know, it's, it's against the laws, after all. I mean, you know, government law, you got to follow that. You know, be more discreet about it. And, and why should you offend these people and their culture? Like, that's part of who they are. That's their identity. And don't you know that you're in Corinth? You know, the lifestyle that they live there, I mean, that's, that's just how they live. It's protected and promoted by the government. You don't want to come in there and start to kind of shake things up. Aren't you just being a troublemaker to go against their laws? I mean, it's against their laws to preach the way that you're preaching. And if God's going to bring about a conviction, I mean, you don't have to be specific. You know, just, just talk about general ideas. You know, turn to God and, you know, God is love. And, you know, we've, we've, we've got something to, to, to share with you about, about Jesus. I want to introduce you to him. Don't, don't call out sins by name, Paul. That's not, that's not what you want to do. But it was the Lord who encouraged Paul to cry loud and spare not. <laughs> Acts 18, verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. I know they say it's against the law, but Paul, I'm telling you to get out there and preach. Lift your voice up. And what was the content of Paul's communication? How did he preach? What did he say? What was the content of the communication? Was he specific about their sins? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, take a look, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And just in case you were wondering what I meant by the unrighteous, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is very specific here. Particular sins are mentioned by name. He calls them out. It's like, like Isaiah 58 verse 1. Like I mentioned before, cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. You call it by name. And the warning is, is that if you belong to this category of the unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? It means to gain. It means to become an heir of. It means to become a participant of. It also means to enter, to enter. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just real quick, if you want to flip over there, just to show you how this word is used. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 50. Right in the middle of this chapter on the resurrection, look what he says in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What, what, what is Paul saying? He's saying that, that you can't get into heaven in your flesh and blood state. You've got to be changed. You can't enter like that. And if you had any doubt about that, look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You, you can't enter like you are. You must be changed to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So Paul's very specific. He says that, that if you're characterized by these sins, you're not going to enter. You need to be changed in order to enter. That's the way that you're going to enter. Not like you are, but you need to be changed first. And, and Paul is like almost surprised that he has to say this. But back in 1 Corinthians 6, it's like, like do, I, do I really have to say what I'm about to say? Don't you know this? Verse 9, or do you not know? 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, I mean, do I, do I really have to say this? Do I really have to remind you of this? I mean, it's like I'm almost embarrassed to have to like list it out here. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. But he also recognizes that there's, there's false teachers, there's deceivers who are attempting to convince them otherwise. So he says, don't be deceived. I know there's a lot of people out there saying something different. Do not be deceived. And then he works through this very specific list of sins that fall under the category of unrighteousness. What do I, what do I mean by unrighteous? Let me, let me get specific here. Fornicators, it's from the Greek word pornos, where we get the English pornography from, a broad word that covers all kinds of sexual sins, sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, really used for any kind of unlawful activity. So if you're, you're sexually active with anybody that you're not married to, you are in violation of this command. It's that simple. It's any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. And because it's so broad, it also covers the acts that lead up to the consummation. So, so everything leading up to the act is also considered underneath this word, pornos. It's, it's all kinds of sexual immorality. So that's why it's, it's, it's a, a very appropriate that we would apply pornography here. Pornography belongs in this category. If you are arousing yourself or arousing somebody else sexually, you're in violation of this command. That's, that's what it's talking about. If you've been physically inappropriate with anybody, if you're, if you're arousing anybody that does not belong to you, you're in violation of this command. It's covered under this porneia, pornos. Not fornicators, nor idolaters. And uh, refers to the practice of worshiping false gods. And like we already mentioned, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. And part of the worship of this Greek goddess of love was to engage in prostitution. It was part of their, their worship. Nor adulterers, those who break, break the covenant of marriage and engage in uh, pursuing their lust outside of uh, the marriage bond. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And this refers to both sides of the homosexual perversion. Those who take on the female role within the relationship are the effeminate. And those who take on the male role within the relationship were considered the homosexuals. But either way, it's an unrighteous perversion. Whether you take the male role, whether you take the female role, it's all an abomination in the sight of God. Nor thieves, you know, not necessarily the, the armed robbers, but the kleptes, the kleptomaniacs, the petty thieves, you know, just taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. Covetous, those who are greedy at heart. You know, violation of the 10th command not to covet. Those who are drunkards, who linger long at the bottle and become intoxicated. If you're, you're, if you're going to the bottle for a buzz, you are in violation of this command. Nor revilers, a word for being abusive in speech. Those who destroy people with their words, wound with their words. Murderers at heart, instead of using instruments, they use their tongues to destroy people. Nor swindlers, a word that means to seize. You know, taking things indirectly. They, they don't come right out and steal it from you. They, uh, they trick you out of your money. That's, that's the, the person who's a swindler. They trick you out of the money. It's in the fine print. They embezzle it. They extort you. They, they sell you things that have no value at a ridiculous price. They're, they're trying to steal your money. They know what they're doing, and the Lord knows what they're doing. And God says, if this is your lifestyle, if your lifestyle is characterized by any of the things that I've just mentioned, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a believer. That's what Paul is saying. Because a believer has a, a new principle of life that begins to manifest itself out in righteousness. The conversion, the, the repentance, the faith toward God. I'm turning away from these things. That, that's the principle of life that's worked out in the life of a true believer. If you're characterized by these sins, it demonstrates that you're outside of the kingdom of God. And I know we all have some people who would object to what we're talking about today because they say, you know, but, but you're just singling out, you know, homosexuality and the effeminate. You know, you're singling that out. Why, why pick that out of this whole list? Why didn't you have a message on swindlers today? And I'd like to remind you of the quote that we began with. If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. Today's attacks are not coming from people who are advocating swindling. Now, that's not where we're receiving the attacks. You know, if, if, I go, if I go downtown right now, stand out on a corner, and say, you know what, it's wrong to be a swindler. 
It's wrong to take money that doesn't belong to you. If I go downtown right now, I might get a round of applause. That's right. That's right. Don't take money. The money is mine. You don't take no money that don't belong to you. That's right. I, I might be applauded and uh, they, 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 they might even uh, nominate me for office. Yeah, get that brother, get that brother in office. Give him a microphone. He needs a microphone that doesn't, doesn't you know, have the static in it. Give him one that's clear. Give him that. Give him the microphone. Because he needs to, he needs to, yep, don't take money that doesn't belong. You need to pay people fairly. That's right. That's, mm-hmm. amen, brother. If I go downtown right now, that's, that's, that's the kind of response that I get, right? But if I go downtown and say, you know what? It is wrong to engage in sins of homosexuality. I might get assaulted. I might get nominated for prison. <laughs> you know, forget about the office. We got a room for you, brother, over here. Where do you think the battlefield is? Where do you think the attack is coming? I went to the doctor's office just to get a a yearly checkup. It used to be that uh, it was pretty easy to to say that you were either male or female. It's just like one box or the other, right? Am am I wrong? (laughs) I went to the doctor's office, and it's like 10 different questions under whether or not you're male or female. Are you a legal male? Are you a legal female? Or... You know, are you this gender or that gender? How do you identify? It's like, what in the world? Male! <laughs> I'm serious. I did not fill out anything else. I am male. That, you figure it out. You know what it is. Don't ask me any dumb questions. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, you see, like, you got to take 10 minutes to fig- figure it out. What's the gender? What in the world? Our libraries aren't filled with books on swindling Christians. Are they? I mean, I know there's a lot of swindling Christians, but they're not promoting it, right? It's just like, you know, we, you know, we need, to, we need to, to accept people who are swindling Christians. Accept the thieving Christians, please. Don't, don't judge the thieving Christians. You know, they're, they're Christians too. That's just how they were born. You know, they can't help it. That's their orientation. Sticky finger Christian, you know, that's, that's, that's what they, they, they enjoy. You know, they, they identify themselves like that. You know, good, good morning, brothers and sisters. Sister, you might want to put away that purse because I'm a, I'm a thieving Christian. That's the, that's the kind of thieving Christian that I am. But I, I, just, I just so appreciate, you know, this, this church that just accepts me for the way that I am. And thank you very much. I mean, it's like, that's, that's, that's where we are. That's where, we, if you want to apply it, you know, across the board, that's, that's, that's what's, what's going on. It's just as ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm the adulterous Christian. I've started a support group for the adulterers to find acceptance in the community of faith. We need more adulterers to join us. Adulterers unite, join our movement. You know, we're the adultering Christians. Where's the battle at? Where's the battle? We, 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 can't, we can't flinch and we can't flee. And if we give cover to people who say that, you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm the gay Christian, I'm the homosexual Christian, that's just, that's how I identify and you say, you know, hey, hey, brother, I, you know, I just, I want you to feel accepted. I don't, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to feel judged in here. You're, you're helping them pack their bags for hell. That's what you're doing. You're, you're not helping them out. You're, you're helping them pack their bags for hell. The message of Christianity is that, that you know what? I'm sorry to hear that, but I want to let you know that you can change. You can change. And I'm calling you to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and repentance from your sins. That's what I'm calling you to. That is the hope that we have. You can be different. We have hope for change. Christianity teaches conversion, conversion from unrighteousness. The next point here, and it's not a long point, but it's an important one, because uh, not only are we learning here in 1 Corinthians about the condemnation of unrighteousness, which is the first point, we're also learning about the conversion from unrighteousness. Verse, verse 11. Look what it says here. Not a long point, but an important one. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And the tense is, the tense is so important here. Because it says such were. Were. Past tense. If you, if you want proof of conversion, there it is right there. And again, I'm not sure where you might find yourself today. Maybe you're listening to me and you know that what you're engaged in is wrong. You want out, but you've bought the lie that it's hopeless, that I can't change. I've been this way as long as I can remember. I've tried so many different times to turn away. The desires are overwhelming. 
There's no possible way that I could ever be delivered from this. The testimony of, of Scripture is that there are believers who have lived your story, and they've lived to tell the tale. They're on the other side, <laughs> right? Such were, such were some of them. Maybe you have a wayward child or another family member who's straying, and you've exhausted all of your resources to help them. And maybe at this point you've just given up, thrown your hands up, like, what else can I do? I've just got to accept them the way that they are. Maybe you've just accepted that that's the way that this person is just going to be. They're not going to change. They're never going to change. But what does Scripture say? Such were. Such were some of you. Maybe you've been faithful to preach the gospel, counsel according to the Scriptures, but now there's a, a possible fine associated with that or jail time. Preaching the same things that you've always preached before. And now you're, you're tempted to back away and then back down the tone a little bit. Do I really have to be so specific? But don't forget that the people need to hear your voice. That this is how Paul preached. That he was specific about sins. Why? Because there was hope for change from these sins. And it needed to be identified. And such were some of you. Cry loudly, do not hold back. And we have people right here that the, the Lord has saved. People, people right here in, in our own congregation. Conversion from unrighteousness and then finally a conversion to righteousness. Last part of verse 11. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Conversion to righteousness. And each, each of these terms refers to an aspect of our salvation. And, and all of these terms appear in the aorist tense, which, which speaks of an action as a whole, a completed action in, in the normal way that Greek authors would speak about the past. So they're not speaking about, he's not speaking about aspects of salvation that are presently being worked out, but rather those aspects of salvation that are already done. And what does he say? He says, you were washed. In, in strong co contrast to who you were, before, now you're washed. You're, you're washed. It's, it's an action as a whole. This is completed. Completed action. You were washed. Complete washing. Freedom from sins. The prefix on that word apa, uh, apaluo is the, uh, uh, the Greek word, but apa indicates that the sins were completely washed away. That apa is a prefix that means uh, from or away from. It, it's been removed from you. It's away from you. It's a thorough washing. And this is exactly what Scripture says happens when we're regenerated or born again. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You've been cleaned, you've been washed, you've been born new. You know, a biblical illustration would be, be Naaman and uh, uh, the captain of the army of, of Syria, cured of his leprosy by dipping into the, to the Jordan. 2 Kings 5.14 says he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean, completely washed. No, no trace of leprosy on him. Everything is completely washed. He says you're washed. Spiritually, you've been washed. What else does Paul say? He says you're also sanctified. And you need to remember that we're talking about, again, a, a position that we have in Christ, something that's already happened not something that's ongoing, but something that's already happened. You know, typically we speak about sanctification as the ongoing putting off of the deeds of the flesh. You know, that's normally how we speak about sanctification. But there's also a positional sanctification. That, 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 that you now have been separated unto the Lord, designated as holy, set apart and consecrated for him. And actually, uh, you find this uh, used in the, the book of, of Corinth where, you know, Paul refers to these Christians as saints, that, that you've been set apart. You're, you're holy ones. What, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Do you know the Corinthians? He says, yeah, I know them. But positionally, I'm telling you that they're sanctified, that they've been set apart. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. You're sanctified. You've been set apart for, for the Lord. Not only are you washed and sanctified, the scripture also lets us know that you've been, been justified. You've been justified. What does it mean to be justified? Declared innocent? Declared righteous? Paul says that's already happened for you. The, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is applied to your account. And I stand before God as, as innocent. 
full of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, that his life has been applied to my account. So I don't have to wait for righteousness one day, someday. But no, righteousness has been given to me as a gift. And, and God, in his courtroom, he slammed down the gavel and said, innocent, innocent, this man's righteous. Let him go. Like, like that's where we are, justified, declared innocent the moment we believe and place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And what a, what a relief for people who knew that they were lawbreakers. Not, not of the law of the land, but of the law of God. Because the law of the land said, no, you're, you're innocent. And God says, no, you're guilty. <laughs> you're guilty of sin. But the moment I place my faith in Jesus Christ, now God says, you're innocent. Because you've placed your faith in, in me. And that pardon is offered in the name of Jesus Christ. So why are we happy to take a stand in solidarity with our brothers in Canada and in Indiana? It's because we understand that this stand is, a truth, uh, is for the truth of the gospel. The biblical gospel is at stake. Why? Because part of the biblical gospel is that you can change. And not only that you can change, but you know what? You must change. That's, that's the gospel. You must change. Repent. Turn to Jesus Christ. Have faith in him. You must change. There's only one name given under heaven among men by which you must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. You can change. That's the call of the gospel. Be saved. We read from uh, Psalm 107 earlier uh, today, and I, I read that purposefully. Uh, there's an illustration uh, from uh, Grace Community Church that, uh, uh, that I always call back to mind when I'm thinking about these, these issues. There was a leader in the, uh, uh, the gay pride movement in uh, L.A. Uh, he led the, the, the gay pride parades and was well-known in, in L.A. for uh, promoting uh, homosexuality. And uh, this individual uh, contracted AIDS, HIV, and uh, didn't know how long he had to live. And he talked to one of his friends, one of his friends who was also in the movement, and he says, I'm, I'm going to die and, and I'm afraid. I don't know what's going to happen to me after death. I'm, I'm terrified. I know that I'm going to die. And uh, he says, do, do you have a, a church that you could recommend for me? And uh, this friend of his says, well, uh, you know, do you just want to feel better or do you want the truth? <laughs> and he says, I want the truth. He says, go, go to Grace Community Church. Went to Grace Community Church. First day that he's uh, in the service, you know, MacArthur opens up with just the reading of, of Scripture, you know, just like, like we do as a practice to, to read through Scripture. And this is the passage that he read, Psalm 107. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love and kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, they wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city, they were hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way. And if you know what that word has, that, you know, the connotation of being in the straight way or being straight in the gay community, this, this, this individual sitting there saying, he's talking to me. <laughs> he's talking to me. And he said, I couldn't wait for you to shut up so I could get up and, you know, talk to you about my salvation. You know, I just wanted you to stop preaching, stop reading. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus right now. You know, couldn't wait for the end of service so that he could walk down. And it also continues in the same chapter to say, in verse 8, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his love and kindness and to, for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled. There was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of all their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. And it was through the reading of this scripture that this gentleman's eyes were opened uh, he gave his life to the Lord, was baptized, MacArthur baptized him, he became a part of the, the church, and uh, died not too long after, but it wasn't before he was able to give testimony that he was redeemed, and the redeemed of the Lord was able to say so. What, what was the, the, the redeemed able to say? The Lord has changed me. 
The Lord has changed me. And that's what the gospel brings. Amen. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity that we have to read scripture, uh, to think about uh, conversion, uh, just knowing that, that uh, we've been changed. What a wonderful change has been brought about in our lives because of the gospel. Uh, Father, we thank you that one day that our eyes were opened, that we were given new life, that we responded in, in faith and repentance to the call of the gospel. And uh, Father, we pray right now that there may be people who are listening who are not saved, who do not know Jesus Christ. And I pray that through the preaching of your word, that life would come. Turn on the lights, Lord. Draw people to yourself. Demonstrate that, that the gospel changes lives. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to stand upon that word, the solid foundation. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.